When I polled my followers on what they wanted to hear for today's episode, what do you think was the most common question? What is the impact of our diet on our mental health? Well, everyday things in our diet can have a profound effect on our mental well-being. What we eat and what we drink can either be a slow poison or our greatest medicine. Tune in for all the details only here on the People Scientist Podcast. to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hi, People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast, where every week I arm us with some scientific evidence so we can all lead the healthy lives we want to live. Today on episode 58, I am answering your questions on nutrition and mental health. I put a poll up on my Instagram stories last week and asked everyone if they would rather hear a topic about nutrition or mental health this week. And if you can believe it, it ended up being a 50-50 split. So I decided to combine the two topics. In the last few weeks, I've received quite a few questions and comments on the fact of while we're staying at home during this quarantine, people are wondering why they may be feeling more negative moods. Like they're feeling more anxious, more feelings of depression, feeling less motivated, and they're wondering how their diet could be impacting their mood. And they want to know some ideas of what we can do in regard to our food intake, our nutrition, in order to improve our mood. So in today's episode, I'm going to dive into the physiology of how certain things in our diet can impact our brain activity and therefore our behavior and mood. So let's jump down this science rabbit hole together and start off with some core takeaways. I feel like all of us at this at times will go through periods of unhealthy eating and drinking. But during this quarantine, it's actually a really powerful time because we are all connected together by all being in the same situation. As a result, at the same time, we are all go, going through the same hardships and obstacles. Many of you have reached out to me in regard to their struggles with mental health and are wanting information on our diet, something we can actually control at this time. That is why I love nutrition, because I think nutrition is very powerful, because in some way we have the power over what we eat and drink. So focusing on nutrition at this time can give us some power and something that we can improve upon for our own health. In this episode, I'm going to talk about how higher intakes of caffeine or alcohol can induce temporary feelings of anxiety, how fried foods and sugar can increase inflammation, which have been implicated in depression, I speak of how low intakes of the B vitamins and vitamin D are associated with poor mood. 
and how we can obtain adequate intake of B vitamins, omega-3 fatty acids, stabilizing our blood sugars and taking in enough vitamin D, and how these can potentially promote a healthier and positive mood. I also touch upon healthy coping strategies during this time to promote our mental health and well-being. Now, let's get into the details. There have been several reports, for example, published in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition last week that reported during the current quarantine, many of us have stated that we are taking in higher amounts of caffeine, more alcohol, more sugar, and in general, more calories than usual. In truth, I think that we've been doing this as a way to help ourselves stay focused on working from home. You know, so that's maybe why we're drinking more coffee or more tea. We might be drinking more alcohol or eating more junk food because it's a way for us to self-medicate ourselves when we are stressed or because we are bored. And I don't want us to feel bad about this because this is our way of trying to improve our mood and to improve our work ethic and staying motivated at this time. But today, I will give us some scientific evidence on the effects of these foods and how they can be impacting our mental health and some tips to make us happier and healthier. So first, let's talk caffeine. Approximately 90% of all adults in the world consume caffeine. That is huge, 90%. As a result, caffeine is considered the most consumed quote-unquote drug in the world. Caffeine is naturally present in coffee, black tea, green tea, and chocolate. Caffeine is also added to sodas, energy drink, some nutritional supplements, and pain medications. For most adults, consumption of up to 400 milligrams of caffeine per day appears to be safe. But you may be wondering, Stephanie, how much is 400 milligrams a day? Well, there is a range of the amount of caffeine that is present in coffee and tea because it does depend on the type and strength of the brew. But on average, 400 milligrams of caffeine is present in about 16 to 24 ounces of coffee, which is about 2 to 3 cups of coffee. 400 milligrams of caffeine can be found in about 5 to 10 shots of espresso and in about 8 cups of black or green tea. The FDA has set a limit of a maximum maximum of 71 milligrams of caffeine per 12 ounces of soda. So a 12 ounce of Coke contains on average 40 milligrams of caffeine. Mountain Dew DMX has the maximum amount of caffeine allowed at 71 milligrams per 12 ounce. Energy drinks like Red Bull have about 80 milligrams, and the 5-hour energy shot has about 215 milligrams of caffeine. So hopefully that'll be a good starting point for you to determine how much caffeine you might be consuming on a daily basis right now. Now when consumed in moderation, coffee and tea, for example, may have some health benefits, which are thought in part due to the antioxidants that are present in tea and coffee. I also personally think that some of the benefits are because of the fact that coffee contains compounds, including caffeine, that can activate our bitter taste receptors. And I go into detail on this topic back in episode 45. Coffee intake is also associated with a lower risk for diabetes. The impact of coffee on heart health, cancer risk, brain health, these are less clear because there are many conflicting studies. But our consumption of caffeine-containing foods and beverages like coffee, tea, and chocolate do seem to have increased during this quarantine time. So how could this be impacting our mood? 
Well, caffeine's physiological and behavioral effects are very much dose-dependent, so research on caffeine must be interpreted with this in mind. But most of the effects of coffee and tea on our mood is due to caffeine's effects as an antagonist or blocker to the adenosine receptors. Now, adenosine tends to build up in our brain throughout the day, which creates sleep pressure, meaning the need for sleep. When adenosine acts on the adenosine receptors, it makes us feel tired and sleepy and aids in sleep. This was reviewed, for example, in the International Review of Neurobiology in 2014. So coffee blocks these actions because it blocks adenosine from acting on its receptor. This is in part why caffeine or coffee reduces fatigue and increases alertness. Rogers in 2013 conducted a really interesting study in regular coffee drinkers. The scientists had the participants do different tasks after caffeine withdrawal and after caffeine intake. Now, caffeine did enhance physical performance as the participants had faster tapping speed and faster simple and choice reaction times. But when they were in withdrawal from caffeine, this was associated with greater sleepiness, lower mental alertness, and poorer performance on simple reaction time choice reaction time, and recognition memory tasks. So when caffeine leaves our system, we may experience caffeine withdrawal and may get a large surge of adenosine acting on the receptors to induce a so-called crash or feeling of fatigue and irritability. So very simply, caffeine blocks the sleep receptors in the brain. Then when caffeine clears, then there could be a rebound effect. And that's why we can get sleepy and irritable. Excessive caffeine intake can also have several side effects on mood and behavior. In one observational study of 217 individuals, the average age of 17, and the common non-serious adverse effects included heart palpitations, tremors or shaky hands, feeling agitated or anxious, and gastrointestinal or stomach upset. We also know that too much caffeine can induce temporary feelings of anxiety. Stimulants in general are known to cause anxiety. For example, in studies where we have to model anxiety, a common way to induce anxious feelings is to give stimulants like caffeine or yohimbine. The reason why caffeine can temporarily increase feelings of anxiety is because it can have a stimulatory effect on the stress system and may increase the fight-or-flight response because it can increase the release of neurotransmitters like norepinephrine. Caffeine is also known to act on reward centers in the brain, and increase the release of dopamine, which can in part explain the feel-good and reinforcing effects of caffeine. For example, in a clinical trial where participants had the dopamine signal measured in their brain using PET scanning or positron emission tomography, and they measured the dopamine signal in certain brain regions after consuming a caffeine tablet, or even just during their anticipation of consuming caffeine. And they had noticed that the anticipation of consuming caffeine and consumption of caffeine itself both increase the dopamine signal in the thalamus of the brain. In rats, they've also observed that caffeine can also increase the release of the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate, as well as the feel-good neurotransmitter dopamine in the reward and pleasure brain region, the nucleus accumbens, meaning that pleasure-feel-good response reinforces the fact that we want to keep consuming caffeine. So when the caffeine clears from our system, we may have a period of withdrawal from the rewarding, pleasurable effects of it, and therefore could potentially exhibit low mood feelings. 
Caffeine withdrawal has been documented quite a lot in scientific studies. For example, this was reviewed in the journal Psychopharmacology in 2004, where they reported that very common symptoms of caffeine withdrawal included headache, fatigue, decreased energy or decreased activeness, decreased alertness, feeling drowsy, depressed mood, difficulty concentrating, feeling irritable, feeling foggy or not clear-headed. In addition, some symptoms such as feeling very nauseous or having muscle pain and stiffness were also reported. So caffeine withdrawal can also have a very negative impact on our mood. Caffeine can also impair our sleep quality, especially if consumed too close to bed. Sleep inadequacy can also lead to irritability and fatigue. So, are you feeling more irritable, tired, or anxious than usual? Are you consuming more coffee, tea, soda, or chocolate than usual? Try to take note of how much caffeine you are consuming, and consider cutting back or eliminating these sources of caffeine altogether for several days, and see how you feel. Because we know through scientific evidence that caffeine can acutely impact our mood, and then when we go into withdrawal from caffeine, can also have a profound impact on our mood. Now, not everyone responds to caffeine in the same way, and that could be due to many things, such as how much caffeine we're consuming, how long we've been consuming caffeine throughout our lifetime, as well as genetics play an important factor too. For example, if we have differences in the expression of our cytochrome P450 enzymes, which metabolize caffeine and eliminate them from the body. In some individuals that have alleles for these enzymes, the caffeine stays in their system longer and therefore may have a stronger impact. Caffeine may have a stronger impact on their mood. So our genetics could also explain how there's variability and how caffeine may have a really powerful impact in some people, not a very strong impact in others. Okay, another thing we may be consuming more of at this time is alcohol. I spoke about the details of how alcohol can impact our brain and mood in episode 14. It is very common for people to self-medicate or use alcohol as a coping mechanism because alcohol is what we call an anxiolytic. It can decrease anxiety. Anxiety is hallmarked by having a lot of glutamate in particular brain regions or having hyper-excitability, because glutamate is the excitatory neurotransmitter that activates brain regions. Lismore in 2008 illustrated that mood disorders such as anxiety and depression are characterized by having too much excitatory activity because of a reduced inhibition or too low of levels of GABA, the quieting or inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. Now here's the thing, alcohol acts on GABA receptors in the brain to reduce the activity of stress and anxiety brain regions, to quiet down those brain regions. But a very common thing is that alcohol can cause a rebound effect and can actually increase feelings of anxiety afterward. This is called rebound hyperexcitability, meaning that alcohol quieted down these brain regions. Then, the activity of these anxiety and stress brain regions becomes even higher than normal once the alcohol is cleared from our system. It's rebounding. Kathleen Brady in 1993 very nicely reviewed the connection between different anxiety disorders and their increased risk for alcoholism, and how this may be a vicious cycle as withdrawal from alcohol can induce temporary feelings of anxiety. So to simplify that, while you are drinking alcohol, alcohol may reduce your anxiety, but then afterward, when the alcohol is cleared from your system, it may actually increase feelings of anxiety. 
A lot of people have reported drinking alcohol to also sleep better. But alcohol induces sedation, not sleep. It's important to keep in mind that these two things are very different. Sleep is still a very active process, and alcohol impairs that. For example, in scientific reports in 2018, scientists reported in rats that medium to high intakes of alcohol impaired the glymphatic functioning or waste disposal system of the brain during sleep. Because during sleep, that is when the glymphatic system is most active and it clears away the metabolic waste that is built up throughout the day. But medium to high intakes of alcohol impairs that. So that can potentially lead to a buildup of metabolic waste in the brain and inhibiting the proper functioning of the brain. However, in this same study, very interestingly, very low doses of alcohol, such as one glass of wine, which is six ounces, was able to improve the glymphatic functioning in the brain of the rats. So ask yourself, are you by chance drinking more alcohol than usual at this time? If so, this could be contributing to improper brain functioning, inadequate sleep, and a negative mood state because of that rebound hyper-excitability and the temporary feelings of anxiety when we're in alcohol withdrawal. Now how about the fact that we are probably eating more processed foods right now? In episode 7, I speak about the relationship between junk food or highly processed food on our mental health. There are many observational studies that show in individuals who consume more processed and fast food tend to be at a higher risk for having depression and anxiety. For example, Sanchez Vigelas and colleagues published in the journal Public Health and Nutrition, a study in nearly 9,000 people living in Spain. The scientists divided up their study population into categories of how much fast food people ate, such as pizza, hamburgers, and sausage and fried foods. The individuals that ate the most fast food were 36% more likely to have diagnosed depression versus those that consumed fast food the least. Now, we don't necessarily know if eating a lot of fast food or junk food is a cause or a consequence of mental health disorders, but the data would suggest that it could potentially be a cause. Now, in both animals and humans, high intakes of junk food or fast food like pizza, soda, candy, cake, fried foods, these seem to decrease the expression of dopamine 2 receptors in the reward and pleasure pathway of the brain. This means that the reward pathway in the brain is blunted and as a result may require even more high-calorie food just to receive the same pleasurable and rewarding brain response. This vicious circle leads us to eating even more high-calorie food. Further, in 2010, Stice and colleagues published a study investigating the response of the brain reward system to a milkshake in women that recently gained weight versus women that had a stable body weight. The investigators noted that the women who recently gained weight had a lower brain reward response to the milkshake, and individuals that tended to have a lower brain reward response were also at a higher risk for overeating. So recent weight gain and overeating may make things less pleasurable to us. This may lead to depressive-like symptoms or consuming even more food or drugs or alcohol just to get the same dopamine release. So in very simple terms, junk food and recent weight gain may negatively change our brain reward system and make things less pleasurable to us. This could all also be linked by inflammation in some regard. In episode 25, I speak about how inflammation and depression are linked. 
Inflammation can alter the metabolism of certain molecules in our brain. For example, if we are in a higher state of inflammation, this can divert the metabolism away from serotonin, which is a very important neurotransmitter regulating our mood, and it can divert the pathway more toward the production of kynurenine and quinolinic acid instead, which are detrimental and negative to our brain health and mood. We know that high intakes of fried foods such as chips, french fries, chicken fingers, etc. can cause lipid peroxidation in our body and can induce a strong inflammatory response. We also know that sugar can increase inflammation in humans as well. For example, in a clinical trial, 29 healthy subjects were asked to drink 600 milliliters of sugar-sweetened beverage such as soda every day for three weeks. They had noted that compared to baseline, a large increase in an inflammatory marker, C-reactive protein, was noted by 60 to 109% at the end of three weeks. So sugar and fried foods can really increase inflammation in the body, which could potentially impact brain metabolism and mental health. Now withdrawal from sugar is also something to consider, because sugar is pleasurable and rewarding to us. And withdrawal effects from the pleasurable response it gives us is possible and common. As a result, many similarities have been drawn between drug addiction and sugar addiction. Withdrawal from both can elicit feelings of anxiety, craving, intrusive thoughts of consuming it, and binging despite the negative consequences. And I go into detail of the similarities between sugar addiction and drug addiction in episode 1. So, are we by chance eating more processed, fried foods, higher amounts of sugar? Because this could also be affecting our mood quite significantly as well. So now that I've talked about the potential negative effects of caffeine, alcohol, fried foods, and high sugar intake, what can we do to improve our mood? So I'm going to talk about nutrition and some recreational activities that we can do to promote our mental health right now. Because many of us are staying indoors a lot more than usual, we may not have access to sunlight, and therefore our conversion of vitamin D by sunlight may be low. Vitamin D has consistently been associated with mental health. For example, Anglin in 2013 pulled together 14 studies and noted that those with vitamin D deficiency were 31% more likely to have depression versus those with adequate vitamin D levels. Now, vitamin D is not too widespread in our diet, but we can get some vitamin D from, for example, tuna, sardines, salmon, fortified milk, and mushrooms. One serving of these food items can, for example, provide 40 to 150 IU, or international units. Now, the goal for vitamin D for adults to get every day is 600 IU per day. That is why a lot of physicians recommend supplementation of vitamin D, especially if we live in northern countries without much sunlight. For example, my physician told me that I am vitamin D deficient, and they recommended for me to take 2,000 IU, a vitamin D supplement, per day. So if you're able to get your vitamin D levels checked by your physician, that would be great information to have. But while we're staying indoors at this time and not really getting much sunlight, vitamin D is something important for us to consider, especially because of its link to mental health and depression. Because of our potentially limited supply to food right now as well, perhaps we are more likely to have some nutrient deficiencies, such as being vitamin B deficient. 
B vitamins have been connected to our mental health for a long time. We've known this from older studies of long ago. For example, Hodges and colleagues in 1958 recruited six healthy men. The scientists would not let the men eat by mouth, so unfortunately this was a bit of an unethical study for its time, but it still provides us important information. So the six men in the study could not eat by mouth, but instead were given stomach tubes, so the food was pumped into their stomach instead. These diets were very unpalatable, meaning gross and not appealing. So that appears to be the reason why they had used stomach tubes. Because they would combine, the for the diet, they combined casein milk protein powder with oils, sugar, and cornstarch, and some vitamins and minerals in order to very precisely control exactly what the men were receiving. Now, two men received a control diet that had all the vitamins and minerals necessary. Two men received the same diet, but with no vitamin B5, and the last two men received the vitamin B5 deficient diet, and also an antagonist or blocker that would block the actions and function of vitamin B5. So this last diet was the most extreme way to assess vitamin B5 deficiency. Chances are, based on previous studies of this type, these men were likely inmates of a prison that were granted early pardon for participating in the study. The six men remained on this diet for 15 days, and essentially the scientists just followed them to see what would happen. Now the two men in the antagonist and vitamin B5 deficient diet exhibited behavioral changes very quickly, such as irritability, restlessness, excessive fatigue, and becoming quarrelsome. The deficient diet group alone also started to exhibit these same symptoms, but a little bit later in the study. Other symptoms such as low energy levels, fatigue, gastrointestinal issues, malaise or feeling ill, apathy meaning they lacked empathy or care, concern or emotion were also noted. And several other studies have reported similar findings for vitamin B5 deficiency. So, how can we ensure that we're getting adequate vitamin B5? Well, the goal is to get about 5 milligrams of vitamin B5 every day. We can get that from example, 140 grams of shiitake mushrooms, 70 grams of sunflower seeds, 75 grams of peanut butter, about two avocados, 263 grams of salmon, canned salmon is also great, or 370 grams of beef. Now, some of these are quite large portions, so combining some smaller portions of multiple foods might be more feasible. For example, one avocado and two-thirds a cup of shiitake mushrooms would give the daily amount. Now, there are also smaller amounts of vitamin B5 that supply around 10 to 30% to of our daily value. For example, we can get that from canned beans, peas, some green leafy vegetables, whole grains, and eggs. One great source of B vitamins is also nutritional yeast. One tablespoon gives more than required for a lot of the B vitamins. Another B vitamin, such as folate, is also important in mental health, and we may be getting lower levels of this in our diet right now. Morris, in 2003, in the journal Psychotherapy and Psychosomatics, identified how individuals living with depression had lower folate levels in their blood versus those that have never been diagnosed with depression. And this finding has been replicated a few times. Bodigilieri, in the journal Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry in the year 2000, reported how low folate levels in the blood may be related to a reduced ability for us to make important neurotransmitters in our brain, such as serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. And it may also impair our ability to metabolize these important molecules. 
This could be a potential reason why low folate intake is associated with a higher risk of depression. Now, considering that folate is also very important for our energy levels and is related to feelings of irritability, it is evident that folate may be necessary for our mental health and wellness. And the greatest food sources of folate include green leafy vegetables. Half a cup of boiled spinach gives 33% of our daily requirement, for example. Because we may not have access to fresh spinach right now, frozen spinach is also a great source of folate. One cup of romaine lettuce gives about 16% of our daily requirement. Half a cup of Brussels sprouts gives 20%. Half a cup of broccoli gives 13%. Half a cup of kidney beans gives 13%. And as I mentioned, nutritional yeast is also a great source of folate and other B vitamins, as one tablespoon gives 106% of the daily requirement of folate. For folate, animal sources are very limited. The best source is 3 ounces of beef liver, which gives about 54% of the daily requirement. Otherwise, chicken breast, ground beef, fish, milk, they really only give about 1-3% to of folate for each serving. Otherwise, a cup of fortified breakfast cereal, if you live in a country that fortifies their grains with folate, can give about 25% of the daily requirement of folate. Now, I've brought up nutritional yeast a couple of times already in this episode, so I just want to talk very briefly about it. Nutritional yeast is a great source of the B vitamins and is shelf-stable, and as a result may be a great option for us to ensure proper B vitamin intake right now. Interestingly, yeast was used to study vitamins back 100 years ago because it was a natural source of B vitamins in which yeast required them to grow. So nutritional yeast is yeast that has been inactivated, so it can't grow anymore, and can instead be added to food as a condiment as a great source of B vitamins. It is best to add the yeast to meals near the end of cooking because the B vitamins can degrade with heat or cooking. I find that the nutritional yeast has somewhat of a similar flavor profile to cheese. So I, for example, add it to sauces, chilies, soups, stir fries, and salads. Next, I want to talk briefly about omega-3 fatty acids and how they are linked to mood and depression. Sue in 2003... Lou in 2017, Mamalakis in 2002, and many, many other scientists have noted that individuals diagnosed with major depressive disorder tend to have lower omega-3 fatty acids in their blood or fat tissue. Now, whether this is a cause or consequence of depression is yet to be understood, but based on my own published research and that of Charles Surhan and many other scientists, omega-3 fatty acids have the ability to be converted into potent anti-inflammatory or inflammation-resolving molecules, so they may be able to lower levels of inflammation and resolve inflammation, and therefore potentially benefit mood by this mechanism. For example, a group of scientists recruited 22 individuals diagnosed with depression, currently undergoing stable treatment for depression with medication. The additional intervention included 440 milligrams of the omega-3 fatty acid EPA, and 220 milligrams of the omega-3 fatty acid, DHA. The control group received olive oil capsules, which had no omega-3s in them. There was quite a bit of variability in how they responded, but overall, it appeared that omega-3 supplementation reduced measures of depression, according to the Hamilton Depression Scale Test of Depressive Symptom Severity. It reduced their depression score on average by 15 points. 
Another study by Pete in 2002 conducted a 12-week randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study with 70 participants. Now, the participants were given 1, 2, or 4 grams of the omega-3 fatty acid EPA every day. Now, those in the 1 gram per day group had the best outcome, in which 53% of the people in that group achieved a 50% reduction in their Hamilton depression scores. So the one gram of EPA was very beneficial, and it also seemed to lead to improvements in their anxiety levels and sleep as well. So some sources of omega-3s that we could add to our diet right now include ground flaxseed, chia seed, walnuts, salmon, and sardines. Okay, now I'm going to end off this episode with some general tips. Quick alterations in blood sugar levels, such as periods of restricting ourselves from eating, then eating sugary or high-carbohydrate foods, can lead to changes in mood, such as irritability. It is best to eat meals with a better glycemic index, meaning cut down or cut out simple carbs, such as white bread, white pasta, white rice, sugar, candies, sauces that contain sugar or high-fructose corn syrup in them. Instead, eat meals that are rich in healthy fats with some protein and fiber. Some meals, for example, could be an avocado with an egg on a slice of whole grain toast, or salmon with grilled vegetables, or a chia seed pudding with peanut butter and berries. Now, for those of you who don't know what a chia seed pudding is, you can take chia seeds and add milk or water to the seeds overnight, and then the next morning it will have a pudding-like consistency in which you can add different things to, such as peanut butter and berries. I talk about the potential health benefits of chia seed back in episode 24 if you want to give that a listen. So keeping our blood sugar levels stable is ideal in order to reduce our irritability and fatigue and alterations in mood. As well, besides nutrition, in episodes 52 to 55, I go into detail on things we can do to promote our mental health while at home, such as doing challenging strategy video games, using art as a therapy, dance, and heat therapy. Now, these can be healthy coping mechanisms to implement. In truth, I think the reason why we're eating more food and drinking wine is because we're bored or because we're stressed. And so if we're going to try to eliminate those things from our daily routine or cut down on them, we have to replace them with other healthy activities or coping strategies. So if you haven't given those episodes a listen, perhaps consider them, and perhaps they can help you stay on track with a healthier lifestyle. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. I hope this episode answers all of your questions in regard to how our diet can impact our mood and behavior right now. In summary, consuming too much caffeine in the form of coffee, tea, chocolate, soda, energy drinks, etc., that can induce feelings of anxiety and can also result in a lot of negative symptoms when we are in withdrawal from caffeine. High intakes of fried foods, sugary foods, and junk food can also induce inflammation and is associated with poor mood. Intake of alcohol may also induce feelings of anxiety because of the rebound hyperexcitability effect when the alcohol is cleared from our system. Alcohol may also impair proper sleep, which can impair the glymphatic system and the clearance of waste from our brain while we sleep. So alcohol might cause a buildup of metabolic waste in our brain. Overall, making sure to get adequate B vitamins, vitamin D, and omega-3 fatty acids, and preventing spikes in our blood sugar by having balanced meals, 
and also by adopting healthy recreational coping strategies such as strategy video games, art, dance, and heat therapy could all be of great benefit to us all right now. So I hope this information was useful and beneficial for all of you. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me on social media. My handles are listed in the description box to this episode. If you by chance are listening on Apple Podcasts, then please take a moment and leave a rating and review so you can let me and others know what you think of the podcast. I hope you all have a healthy and wonderful week, and I will meet you back here the same time and same place next week on the People Scientist Podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.